Good morning, everybody. My name is Victor. Uh, for those of you who are visiting today, um, it's good to be with you guys. Um, so I'm going to read my scripture text um, to do so. I need a Bible. And guys, guess what? You have Bibles too in your pews. So if you would, uh, t- let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 14, starting in verse 8. Acts 14, verse 8. I'll give you a moment to get there. Okay, here we go. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycanian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas They called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness." Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of the Lord. So this summer, at the beginning of ordinary time, uh, we're walking through Paul's missionary journeys, which is in the latter half of the book of Acts. We've spent months considering the story of Jesus from Advent through Lent, Eastertide, Ascension, and finally Pentecost. And now it's time uh, to, to process it and apply this story to our lives. And I think it's useful to go back to the beginning of something to remind ourselves of its purpose. If you think about it, it's why married couples who might have lost their way, they, they go back to their wedding video and they watch it. Um, they go back to their, their vows, these old promises that they made to one another years and years ago. And they, they do so to remind themselves of why we got into this thing in the first place. And that's what we're doing here in the book of Acts. We're looking at the very beginnings of our family history. How did it start? What did it look like? So that we can remind ourselves of our purpose And take away what doesn't belong, what doesn't belong here, and apply the story of Jesus 
to our personal lives and to our community so that we look and live and love like Jesus intended his church to do. So last week, we kind of saw the hinge point in Acts where the gospel which had spread through the city of Jerusalem, the regions of Judea and Samaria, it spills over into the ends of the earth. People were sharing about Jesus with Gentiles, which just means non-Jewish people in the city of Antioch in Syria, and they were turning and believing in Jesus. And so since Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey, they've traveled from Antioch in Syria to this um, island of Cyprus. From there, they've gone to to the southern coast of what's modern-day Turkey. They've traveled through different cities, Perga, Antioch, Iconium, sharing first in the synagogues with Jews And then when persecution drove them out, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Finally, in Acts chapter 14, which we just read, they come to the city of Lystra. And so what do we know about this city? Well, it was mainly a Gentile city, and it actually did not have a synagogue. The Lystrians were polytheists, which just means they believed in a bunch of gods. They believed in the Greek pantheon of gods. And so um, when they needed rain, they sacrificed to Zeus. When they needed love, they sacrificed to Eros and Aphrodite. When they needed uh, money and success in commerce, they sacrificed to Plutus. And I think, um, you know, we we might be tempted to just shake our heads at these dirty, rotten pagans. I feel like just you need to say that phrase in that accent. Dirty, rotten pagans. I don't know. I just needed to do that. But I think um, we just have more in common uh, with these folks than we may first think. Just think about it. Money, self, sex, success, sport, politics. I think that we here in Lincoln, Nebraska, in the middle of the Midwest, We have our own pantheon of gods, too. We sacrifice our time, our attention, our love, our worship to these things that that can't ultimately save us. So, how does the gospel of the kingdom spread when the hearts and minds of a people are so occupied with so many gods? Because this is different religious terrain than that Paul and Barnabas enter into in Acts 14. Because up until this point, Paul's process has been he's traveled from city to city and he's gone first into the synagogues, reasoning with the God-fearing Jews from their own scriptures about the risen Christ. But these Lystrans, they didn't know anything about Yahweh. They didn't know anything about the God of the Jews. They had no familiarity with the Jewish scriptures They didn't know about Jesus and this swelling movement of Christians that is coming out of Jerusalem. And so how? How do we share Jesus in a city full of gods? That's a question that we're going to ask together this morning. Let me pray. Father, we look to you and uh, we need you. Some of us, um, like these... uh, folks in Lystra, uh, they've 
they've no familiarity with you and they've somehow uh, brought together the courage to walk into a place where we sing and talk about God. And uh, so, Lord, I just pray, would you help us um, meet, would you meet them where they're at? Would you show your face to them? Would you remind us of your great love for us? I need you. Uh, We desperately need you. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we share Jesus in a city that's full of gods? Uh, First, we, we meet, we care for their needs. That's our first point. We care for their needs. So look at verse eight with me. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He'd never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And so first thing that Paul does is he enters into the city with no familiarity with Yahweh, with the God of the Jewish scriptures, um, is he, he heals a man. Words and deeds, you know, they should always go together in ministry. And just as miracles accompanied the preaching of the gospel in the first century and legitimized the apostles' ministry, the same goes for mercy-oriented ministry. So consider um, Acts chapter 6. The apostles' ministry was coming under scrutiny because there were Greek-speaking Jewish widows being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So the weak, marginalized were being neglected. And so what did the apostles do? They didn't say, you know what, that's not our job. Um, Our concern is the spiritual stuff. We're here to preach the good news about Jesus. No, that's not what they did. They appointed folks to minister to the physical needs of the disciples. And what happened? Well, we read later on that the word of God continued to increase and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And I know that Paul, you know, here in Acts 14, he's performing a miracle and I don't want us to get distracted by that. Whether or not you and I uh, can perform miracles today, I don't think is the focus of this text Because the way that the New Testament speaks of ministry in Jesus' name is never, ever unwedded from mercy towards those with physical needs. It just isn't. And why is that? Why is that important? Because talking about love for God while at the same time neglecting just the very basic needs of our neighbor, it just, it looks bad. It looks bad. Who would want to hear about, let alone follow a God who doesn't change the way people live with or love those in need. And it reminds me about um, my time. So I worked at a coffee shop in seminary and I worked back in the kitchen doing just like all the ugly stuff, not making the frilly like latte art. Um, And I I worked in this kitchen with um, a lady and she knew that I was a Christian and she was just very opposed um, to my beliefs about the world. And um, I think it, it's the, the closest thing I've ever experienced to like persecution as a, you know, a Christian in the Midwest. 
Um, she would just say just nasty words that if I said them out loud here, you would just like fire me or the, the hair on the back of your neck would just raise. It's just nasty things, nasty things. Um, and I worked there for, you know, a, a year or so and she unexpectedly got pregnant and she was a single, single person about to become a single mom working, um, a minimum wage job. And she was afraid she was very anxious. How am I going to support this child? And um, what, what I did was I, I got the other people in, in, uh, on staff to, to pool together some money and buy her a pack and play for her new baby. And uh, we presented it to her. We kind of threw her a baby shower and had like a celebration for her. And I'll tell you what, guys, like from then on, she never called me a name again. She never spoke an ill word about my faith in Jesus again. When we had some amazing conversations about Jesus and about her beliefs after that. And so I think it just goes to show that uh, meeting the physical needs of a person is just the first step. It's where Paul starts in sharing Jesus with those um, who are far from him. So how do we share Jesus in a city full of gods. Well, look around. Look around you. What are the needs of your neighbor? The first thing that Paul does is he makes broken legs good again, work again. He brings the kingdom of God to bear in just a very simple yet powerful way that, that elicits awe and worship and it captivates the imagination and hearts of a whole city. And so first, we care for people's needs. But do we only focus on what's lacking? I don't think so. And so our second point is we need to meet them where they're at. We need to meet them where they're at. So, so when Paul walked into Lystra, he didn't only see what was broken. He recognized what they had, what they had, and he met them there. First, I think he listened uh, for their stories. So what do they believe about the world? Look at verses 11 and 12. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycanian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. So myths, these stories existed among the Lystrans at this time that the gods Hermes and Zeus had once visited their, their region in human form. And apparently... These gods, they, they visited a, like a thousand homes. No one welcomed them except for these two elderly folk. And because of that, only those people escaped the wrath and anger and judgment of these two gods. So that kind of story, can you imagine what that kind of story will do to the imagination of a people? I mean, it just, it's no wonder that Paul and Barnabas can barely keep these people from offering sacrifices to them because if they don't offer these gods hospitality, that means they come under their judgment and anger. So their, their worship is devout, but it's motivated by fear. It's motivated by fear. And I think that we have stories like that too, you know, about these gods wrapped in human flesh who come down to save our broken world. I mean, just think about the success of something like the Marvel films. So like Thor, like Captain America, Iron Man, Black Panther, 
just these gods who are walking around, saving us from utter destruction. So walking into a city with no synagogue, no prior knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, no idea about Jesus, Paul listens first for their stories, and he doesn't do it just so he can find out where they're wrong. At least not at first. He starts with their stories to, to see where is God working in these people, even though they don't acknowledge him, even though they don't know him, where is God at work in these people, and what do their stories about how, what they believe about the world reveal about their, their longings. So second, he listens for their longings. They exclaim that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. But the thing is, that, that something that amazing for them belonged in myths and folk tales. They could barely imagine that the gods would actually do some, such a thing, notice them take interest in them, become like a human and visit them. Yet they still longed for something like that. So where does Paul start? Not with what they lack, but with what they long for. And so I I have a friend um, who doesn't know Jesus, um, who works as a lawyer, and he his job is to represent older folks who are um, in nursing home situations. And he represents them and defends them um, against nursing homes who are, are, are neglecting their care, treating them poorly. And when I asked my friend, you know, why do you love your job? Their, their first answer was not, oh, because it just makes really good money. Their answer was actually, it's because I get to do the work of justice on behalf of those who are weak, who can't stand up for themselves. I mean, this guy's like, he's an atheist. He's an atheist. But I think that that desire to do justice is one that God would agree with. And I think it's, it's one that I would argue God has placed in my friend because he's made in God's image. And so I want you to consider just an, an other than Christian person in your life, a friend, a family member, a coworker. What's the first thing that pops into your mind about them? Is it their, their failure? Is it their, their sin? Um, is it their blindness to God and his ways? And I would just say be careful because that's not where God starts with them. God does not start there with those people because he's made that person in his image. So do you know the stories that they believe about the world? And how does that result in beauty and goodness and truth in that person's life? Though they don't know God, though they don't acknowledge him, where do you see longings that God would agree with? Gifts being used that point to God's work in their lives despite the fact that they don't acknowledge him one bit. What do you see there? So how do we share Jesus in a city full of gods? We, we meet their needs and then we meet them where they're at. But is that where we leave them? I don't think so. So let's look at verses 14 and 15. Paul and Barnabas see the Lystrans. They start to offer worship to them. And they respond quickly to stop them. So they, t- they tore their garments. They rush out in the, into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Real quick, look at verse 15. Um, this term here for vain things, maybe your, your translation would say worthless things. This Greek word here means um, literally being of no use, idle, empty, fruitless, useless, powerless. Those are strong words. Paul is exposing the powerlessness of the gods that the Lystrans have given their love and worship to. He's saying, you guys, you can't keep these gods alive. You can't keep them alive and working with any amount of sacrifices that you dish over to them. They're dead and they're powerless to save you. And he contrasts these dead things with the living God in verse 15. And living here means that this creator God, he isn't subject to death. He isn't controlled or dependent upon or empowered by what he has made. He is life itself. He possesses all power. He made all things, sustains all things, and he doesn't need our help to do so. Which means, which means that he actually has the power to save us, rescue us, and forgive us. Because he's not reliant upon you. And so, real quick, is this like a cruel thing that Paul is doing? Is this a cruel thing? How does he know that he's right and that they are wrong? I think in our very, like, tolerant culture that this is a, is a, is a big pill to swallow. Um, and if Paul is right, what right does he have to say anything disagreeable about what they believe? You know, you do you. I'll do me, you do you. Um, so I recently got into woodworking and I joined this maker's space where I have access, full access to these very powerful and dangerous tools. Very dangerous. And there's nothing more dangerous than like a beginner woodworker who thinks he knows what he's doing. And if I'm using one of these tools incorrectly at all, I can get myself into big trouble. My dad, I remember this, like he used to do this thing where he like fake took his finger off and acted like he had chopped off his finger. And I was, my little four-year-old brain was like blown. I was like, what happened to your finger? Well, that could actually happen with the table saw, the three horsepower table saw that I'm messing with in this, this maker space. So if I'm using this tool correctly, then I can incorrectly, I can cause a lot of trouble for me personally. But thankfully, there's this instructor who's there, the shop instructor who, who monitors the use of all of these tools. He's done woodworking for years. He's set up and maintained these tools for years. He knows the inner workings of them. He knows how they're supposed to be used. And so my question is, would it be cruel of him to see, uh, to tell me that I'm wrong? to tell me that I'm wrong, to correct me, and, and, and to tell me how to use the tool correctly so that I avoid harm? Or would it be cruel of him to see me using it wrong and to say nothing? Which one would be more cruel? 
I think that the same is true for how we view and use our lives. We can live in such a way that's dangerous for us. We can live in such a way that does damage to our relationships between us and God, between us and one another, between us and ourselves, between us and the rest of creation. We can worship things that that shape our hearts and imaginations in ways that God never intended. And so I think in that sense, it is love which is compelling Paul to say these idols are powerless to save you. They're dangerous. They're shaping you in, in lifeless ways. And I think that he can say this in such a way that, that it's actually good news. It's what he calls, it's good news. So look, I, I get that there's a, I want you to know, I get that there's a big difference between just being prideful and acting like I know everything about everything. There's a big difference between that and humbly, yet unapologetically, believing in the gospel as the power of God for salvation for everyone, right? There's a huge difference. And you guys have seen folks in both camps. (laughs) This part, and I just want you to know that this part of sharing Jesus, it might take a while. I think that a lot of times people need to be converted to you before they're going to ever be able to hear you tell them that something, that what they worship, what they give their love to, love to is powerless, is leading them to lifeless existence. I think it just takes some time. But also remember um, that Paul's sharing Jesus, is, it just isn't accepted by everyone. Because a few verses later, they're throwing stones at him and driving him out of the city. So exposing the powerlessness of what people will believe in, it's going to result in acceptance, indifference, or just straight up opposition. So Paul exposes the powerlessness of these Lystrans idols, but he doesn't leave them there because that would, be, that would leave them hopeless, right? So finally, this is our last point, he gives them good news. We need to give them good news. So what did these Lystrans believe about the gods that enchanted their world? We see throughout this passage that they are very devout in their worship. Paul and Barnabas can barely keep them from trying to offer sacrifice to them because they've learned that in order to get the gods' attention or avoid their wrath and, and um, judgment, they need to give and give and give. And I think that we can be mistaken about God, who he is what he cares about, what he thinks of you, what he expects of you. And so what does Paul share here about God that might be good news to them? Well, first he shares that God is very, very patient. God is patient. So look at verse 16. Paul says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So since the beginning of time, God has graciously patiently born with the nations outside of Israel for centuries. He's just let them walk in their own ways, worship gods that rival him, and remember their stories. When the Lystrans didn't show Zeus and Hermes hospitality, what happened? They faced their wrath and judgment. But Paul says that the creator of the universe, who they've missed for generations and generations, has been patient with them. 
So God is patient. Second, he says that God is generous. So look at verse 17. He says, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So not only has God been patient with these people, he has provided for them. And ironically, though they failed to show the the creator God hospitality, he's shown hospitality to them, filling their bellies with food and their hearts with gladness. So God is patient. God is generous. They were wrong about who God was. And just an aside here, I just think it's so interesting that Paul, he doesn't even mention the name of Jesus. Did you guys catch that? And I think that that goes to show that there's just not one single way to share the gospel. And that more often than not sharing about Jesus with our other than Christian friends, it happens in fits and starts. It happens between bites of taco and awkward moments just around the fire pit. It just, it, it happens um, sporadically sometimes. But by no means does that rob the gospel of its power. Because look at this. In verse 21 and 22, after Paul and Barnabas are driven out of the city, they return. Why? Uh, It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, which means that people had believed in Jesus because of Paul's very simple message. So to recap, how do we share Jesus in a city full of idols? In a city like Lincoln, Nebraska, first we care for people's needs. We meet them where they're at. We humbly expose the powerlessness of what they trust in to save them. And finally, we give them good, good news. That there's this God who's so patient, who's so generous towards even those who don't worship him or acknowledge him. So remember that the Lystrans, they couldn't believe that the gods would come down and visit them in human form. That kind of stuff was meant for fairy tales and Marvel films. But friends, it's no myth. It's no myth. It actually happened in Christ. It's true. God has shown his patience and generosity towards those who are far from him, towards you, towards you and myself in his son, Jesus, who became a human with real flesh and real bone, the one true God who doesn't demand sacrifice from us to be right with him or to appease his wrath, but who sacrificed himself, who was patient towards you, who was generous towards you so that you would be with him forever. So this is the story that you and I have been rescued into, and it's the story that we get to tell with our lives. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have gone uh, great distances. You have crossed continents and centuries and um, yeah, to, to, to just find us and rescue us. You have brought us into this story um, where we get to be yours forever. Um, The story that is very uh, different than other stories in the world where where we just have to give and sacrifice 
um, to appease uh, these gods you have given yourself. Man, that is just good news. So Lord, help us rest in that. Help us not just get it in our heads, but very much in our hearts. Would you do that work, Holy Spirit? And uh, yeah, we just give our lives to you. I just pray. I know that there are people who we have touch points with, whether they're family or friends or coworkers. Would you just make us bold, courageous people to share Jesus confidently and humbly so that your kingdom would spread. We don't have to be good at it or perfect at it because your spirit is so powerful. But would you use us as a church um, to make your kingdom grow, to make heaven come on earth? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.